Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord God, your God to the test. When the devil had finished all um, this temptation, or the, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Thanks, Jeanette, and thanks, Catherine, for your worship this morning. Thanks, team, um, for leading us so lovely, 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 love, well, well, we'll do that, we'll say well. <laughs> uh, last week, we started a new series, didn't we? We started on emotionally healthy spirituality, and the premise of the whole series is it is impossibly, impossible, I'm having trouble with my words this morning, we've got a long way to go, so... Buckle up. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. They're tied. There's a link. And we need to make sure that we understand that link. It's based on the book by Pete Scazzaro. And it's well worth getting a hold of if you can. If you... Um, or if you'd like to read it on your devices, Kindle has it as well. Um, it's worth getting. It's worth a good read. Um, it's all about genuine discipleship. It's all about a whole life discipleship. And over the next seven weeks, we'll look at various pathways that we can work towards in order to become full life disciples, whole life disciples, understanding ourselves so that we may understand how God interacts with us in new ways. Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24 speaks to this. It says this, You were taught with regard to the former way of life, 
to put off your old self, to be made new in the attitude... Oh, sorry. Uh, it isn't working today, isn't it? It's not coming out quite the same. To put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, for those who know Christ, we have a former way of life. That's our old self. And Paul says that we need to put it off, to to get rid of it. Why? Because it's been corrupted by deceitful desires. That word corrupted in the the original Greek meant to to be led away and destroyed. Our old self, because of our deceitful desires, our human desires is leading us away and destroying us. Yet by contrast, Paul says, the new self, that's where it's at. Because the new self, you're being created to be like God. True righteousness and holiness. The old self equals destruction. The new self is like God. There's a big gap though, isn't it? Destruction to holiness. There's a massive void between the old self and the new self. And Paul is urging the Christian church, get rid of that old self. Because it's not the self that reflects Christ. Have you ever had that experience of someone sort of coming to you and going, do I know you? Have you ever had that? Someone said, do I know you? And I've come to the conclusion that if, you, if someone asks you that question, then, then the answer is probably no. You don't really know me. We might have had a conversation 15 years ago or something, but do you know me? Maybe not. I could get to know you, but do you know me? Because I know that when I meet someone, the self that I produce on the spot is not necessarily the self that I really am to my closest friends and my family. The self, this is a part of who me is, who I am, and I'll allow you to get an insight. And the self that, that, that I am, it's the self that when I meet someone, it's the self that I want them to like me. I want them to see a person that, that is, is nice, to see a person that accepts them. It's a self that, that, that can hide the warts and all approach that sometimes my closest friends and um, my confidants or my family don't see. I wonder what will be the case when we meet Jesus. Will he look at you and go, Do I know know you? Does your true self, the self that we show Jesus, reflect the new self or the old self? These aren't new ideas. These aren't sort of new things that have come just in the recent times. They're ideas that shape who we are, but they're not new. Indeed, Augustine in AD 500, he wrote in his uh, Confessions, he wrote this, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self. And he prayed this, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Way back then, Augustine was connecting the dots. He said, if I don't know who I am, if I'm my old self, my false self, how am I actually going to know God? John Calvin, in 1530, he wrote this, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. 
But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to each other. He's saying they're connected. Knowing ourselves allows us to deeper understand God and God in and through us. The problem is that many of us go on with our lives, on with what we do, on with our daily walk, without knowing really who we are. Without being fully aware of it, we end up living an other life, a life that perhaps has been based on what we were told we had to be, or through the expectations of our past, things that have been talked to us about over many, many years, that have shaped us into this place where we go, I'm not sure if that's really me or not. Solari and I, uh, a little while back, we went to the stage production of, of Harry Potter. And, uh, and we loved it. It was just a, a fantastic production, very long, six hours worth, but it's really great. Yeah, <sighs> this whole day. And anyway, but, um, but at the end of the show, if you've ever been to any sort of show, at the end of the show, the, the characters were on stage. They come out and they, and they, they start doing this. They might have been the most serious person in the show, but then the stage, and afterwards they go, yeah, and then they do the vows, and they're like, ah, and they're different when they finish the show than when they start the show, aren't they? So on stage, they've got a stage face. But as soon as they get backstage or once the show's over, it's a whole new face. It's a different face. I wonder if we sometimes put on a Christian character in order to do the Christian part of our lives and whether we've got a gap between the stage face and the off-stage face. Ephesians 4 says, get rid of the stage face. Get rid of the false self. Today, if nothing else gets through, I want to hear this. God has given us a unique identity and the choices that we make impact positively or negatively into this unique identity. It impacts whether we live into our new self or if we fall into our old self. My hope is that within ourselves we don't have that gap between the stage face and what's behind the scenes. In fact, my hope is that the difference would be minimal and we're continually trying to diminish it. Because when we lose that gap, that's when we become a a representation of the true self, of who God called us to be. When there's no gap, that's what God is calling us to be as a new self. The reading that we just heard from Jeanette from chapter 4 of Luke, it outlines the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And in it we hear three false identities that, that Satan offers Jesus and indeed offers each of us so often. And they're, they're, they're temptations that we can succumb to that makes that gap even further from the, the true self to the false self. We see in Jesus this this perfect response each and every time. A response that wasn't based on an old self attitude that was corrupted by deceit, as Paul says it. Not that Jesus would have had that anyway. But, but rather his responses were made through knowing who he is in the eyes of his Father, in the eyes of God. So before we flick open to chapter 4 of Luke, backtrack a bit into Luke chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, if you've got your phones, if you've got your... Tablets, whatever you use to to look into your scriptures um, at home, if you've got something to utilize as well. Uh, Let's go back into Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 gives us 
a view of Jesus' baptism. And this is where he was baptized. And the, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And the affirmation of who Jesus is, is verbalized. It's spoken. And it says in Luke chapter 3, You are my son, the beloved, the loved one, the one I love. With you, I am well pleased. The kids say that now, I'm well pleased. The English, especially if they're in Britain, when I was in Britain, a youth pastor, I'm well chuffed. That was what they used to say all the time. (laughs) I'm well chuffed. With you and my son, I'm well chuffed. (laughs) This is before Jesus begins any ministry. This is before he, he starts doing any miracles. It's before he's got a public following and, and a million Instagram followers. It's before all of that sort of thing was happening. Before Jesus begins, he's grounded in who his father says he is. God says, you are mine. And the natural response to that is, I am yours. Before having our, our first child, I had a very real fear. And you'll probably laugh at me for this. Um, not a real valid fear, but it was, it was within me. It was a very real fear. Um, Solari's pregnant, and I remember um, finding out for that first time that she's pregnant, and I got in a flap going, oh no, what do we do now? Um, all that sort of stuff. And as the pregnancy went through, as we got to the, the stage where we're about to have this, this child, the fear in me was, what if my child doesn't like me? What if my child just doesn't like me? What if I'm not a likable dad? What if my... Son or daughter, I didn't know what it was at the time. What if they looked up at me and just went, I don't want to be with that dad. I realized pretty quickly that was a a fear that was um, my own issue and my own problems. And I have to unpack that at some stage. But I realized that as I heaped love onto Tarquin as a baby, the more that he heaped his arms around me and said, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. As I told him how much I loved him, his response was that, Daddy, I want to be with you. And he's mine, and I am his. This was Jesus' response. God is well pleased, my beloved. And Jesus now, in that confidence, moves into ministry, moves into making a difference in the world. So we come back, flip over to chapter 4. We come back to chapter 4, and we have Jesus now in this strange starting point to ministry. Let's let's read verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so he's just come from his baptism, he left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Have you heard that before? Led by the Spirit. The Spirit, the pneuma of God, the, the Holy Spirit, the same word that describes the third person of the Trinity. It was this Spirit that led him into the wilderness. And quite often we go, oh, he's just led there to be tempted. It's led there to be a, a place where he will be found out. So he better know who he is. I've been guilty of looking over that part of the passage before. He was led there for 40 days, not eating, very hungry. And it says he was tempted by the devil. You would be tempted. When I don't have food for a day, what I want to do is eat chocolate. I don't know about anyone else. That's what I want to do. And I'm tempted. I'm tempted. And I know there's always a block of chocolate sitting in my house. And I'm very tempted. And it's like this battle that I'm always going through. Get tempted. Get tempted. 40 days, Jesus is tempted. But if we skip through forward to Luke 4.32, Jesus has now begun his ministry. He's done his 40 days. He's been in the, in the desert. He's been tempted. And he goes into ministry sort of from zero to 100 really, really, really quickly. 
He goes from this journey in the desert to this overload on ministry. He was teaching all day, driving out demons, healing people. It was a busy day of ministry. And in verse 40, we hear that at sunset, the people brought all to Jesus who had various kinds of sicknesses. There was people lining up to see him. It was long and it went late. Yet Luke 4.42 says this, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Forward again to Luke 15, verse 15 and 16. Jesus is getting a following now. His popularity is starting to increase. People are seeing what he's doing. He's becoming known. And verse 15 and 16 says this, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus withdrew. Chapter 4, verse 1, wilderness. Chapter 4, verse 42, solitary places. Chapter 5, verse 16, to lonely places. What do you think these three words have in common? They're all the same word in the Greek. Eremos. That's the word. Eremos. It means solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited. Here was Jesus early in his ministry, showing us that he needed these wilderness spaces, solitary places, in order to, 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 to live out his true self. He needed the place away from the busyness to remember who he was and what he was called to do. Was Jesus sent to the desert just to be tempted? I reckon Jesus was sent to this wilderness place to be formed. I reckon Jesus had something in him when he was taken away by the Spirit, not by the devil, by the Spirit... To be formed. He was tempted there, but he was formed. He's just come out of his baptism. He knows who he is. And in this place, he was formed. Elijah goes to the desert. He was formed. There's something about finding a place to be formed. Knowing who you are in Christ being formed by him. We touched a little bit on this last week when we're talking about being emotionally unhealthy spirituality and the need to find silence, to be with God. Jesus needed it. We need it. If it's good for Jesus, it's good for us, isn't it? We're, uh, as pastors, Jeanette, um, uh, Melissa and I, we were able to get to a pastor's day on Friday called Nourish. And the idea of it is that the BUV put this on for us pastors to nourish us, to give us some, um, some time of nourishing. And it's great. I really enjoy it. Um, but while we are there, we also had a professional standards workshop to help us to, um, I suppose, continue to, to learn and grow as pastors about what we need to be doing um, as pastors. But this was all about the impact of COVID. And they talked about the cumulative load that people were feeling as COVID went on. And they were talking about this cumulative impact on people as more and more events or more and more trauma or more and more pressure built, but there was no relief because COVID just kept going. We were at home and there were many times we thought, this is easy, we can do this, but COVID just put pressure. There was no time to recover. And many of us, pastors, probably many of you in different professions, just had to keep going and we couldn't really stop. But the reality was, and I don't know if you felt this, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. By the end of it, we were tired. And it's at the time that we should draw close to God. When we're tired, 
But even more, before we get tired, before Jesus went into ministry, he found those Eremos spaces, getting away with his father to remind himself of who his father believes him to be, the beloved. Step away from the stuff and getting back to being in the wilderness, the solitary places, the lonely places, in the presence of God. It's important for us to do that. See, Jesus found his replenishment in that Eremos, and he was able to move forward in his ministry, confident of who he was in Christ. Our time in the wilderness actually helps us to make choices to remain faithful to God in whatever circumstance that we face. It helps us to remain faithful to the true self rather than falling back into the false self. God's shaped us all. We've been given a unique personality, a unique thoughts, dreams, temperaments, feelings, talents, gifts. We've been given different desires. He's made you uniquely you. And he's done this because he loves you so deeply. And God wants you to live in that space. God wants you to live in that true self of of how much God loves you and shaped you to be truly you. Let's come back to the start of Luke chapter 4 and look at these temptations after this initial wilderness time. And it'll help us uh, with these um, three. It'll, it'll help us with uh, these three choices that we have to make each day to be our unique self, to be our true self. Because Jesus was tempted three times, and we'll run through them. The first temptation that Jesus had was this: He says, "I am what I do," and it's all about performance. Sorry, you can't see that all that well. It's all about performance. Verse three: The devil said to him, "If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread." Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus, remember, he hasn't really done a whole lot yet. He hasn't been out doing ministry. He didn't have a massive following yet. And the first thing he does is go to the desert after he has his baptism. He was hungry and the devil tempts him to do something. He says, make your mark, Jesus. This is your moment. Might only be small because you're serving yourself, but do it. People are going to hear about it. Show us what you can do. You're hungry. Make this stone a loaf of bread. How often are we asked that question? Not make the stone a loaf of bread, but how often are we ask the question, can you do something? Show us what you've achieved. Tell us about yourself. Someone says, hey, tell me a little bit about you. What do we say? Quite often we tell them what we've achieved. Well, I'm in business, or I have uh, done this thing. And we consider ourselves worthwhile because of the achievements or the performance that we've done. We equate success to our performance in our workplace or in our home life, whatever it might be. And when we consider that the lie that is of our worth is tied to our success and achievements. We sort of lose, lose sight of God's acceptance of who we are. I remember hearing about Rick Warren after he wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And um, the book sold millions and millions all across the world. And it was a big thing, and, and I'm sure many of you have read that. 
And he said that he really struggled with the success that he started to have because he was successful. There's no doubt about it. He was successful. And he had a whole lot of money coming in to him because of this success of the book. He was already a pastor of a big church and he already had a, 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 a wage. He was doing all right. But he had all this money coming in. And I remember him saying, I don't know how I can handle this success in a godly manner. And so he said, God's saying, don't accept the money. Give it back. And so he set up charities. He, gave, he, gave, he reversed tithes. So he started not at your 10%, he started at 90% and worked up from there <laughs> of giving back. He no longer took a, um, a, a wage from the church, but he gave that back to the ministries of the church because he knew that success didn't equate, success in that way didn't equate to what God had called him to be or who God had called him to be. How does success drive you? Perhaps success has been defined by a position. Maybe success for you is about how your family looks to other families. Maybe it's striving to have the best of something, the best car or the best house or the best whatever it might be. See, succumbing to this temptation, the problem with it is that our eyes are exactly what Ephesians 4 tells us not to do. We're starting to be destroyed by these deceitful desires. Now, don't get me wrong here. A good being successful in a workplace is not wrong. Don't get me wrong with that. Being successful in your community is fantastic. I don't want to change that sort of thing. But the question is, how does success draw you away, or does success draw you away from the new self that God has made you? Or does your success lead you into that true self? Jesus said, you know what, I'm not going to do something to make you, uh, to, to, for, for you. Because I'm not going to define success by what I can do. I'm going to be defined by who I am, the beloved. Temptation number two that Jesus hit is, I am what I have. Possessions. The devil, this is verse 5, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to Anyone I want to, anyone I want to, if you worship me, it will all be yours. So the devil's taking him up to the big lookout and show Jesus the majesty of the world. He says, look out there. Look at all that is in front of you. You can have it all. It's all yours. You can have it. Your name is written on it. We live in an era more than ever, that what you own defines who you are. Every car trip that the boys and I take, whether it even happened on the way to, to, to church and Kyra's involved in this, uh, we play this game. And it's, um, what do we call it? We call it My Car. And we call it My Car because every time you see a nice car and we saw this beautiful Porsche driving along the road and Tarkin goes, My Car! And, and the, the, the premise of the game is, by the time you get to the end of your journey, whether it's from home to church or whether it's to Ballarat, wherever it might be, by the, by the end of the journey, whoever's got the best car is the winner of the game. Now, it's a, it's a hard one. I keep trying to tell them, but that's a bit subjective because what I like might be different to what you like. So what is the best car? But anyway, um, 
the, 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 the keys to get a Lamborghini or something like that. That's, that's, the, that's the excitement about it. But the reality, it is, it's only feeding to this idea that, that we can have the best things. That I'm looking at someone else and they've got something better than us. Marketers nowadays spend ridiculous amounts of money on advertising that make us feel that we need to have something. Whether it be the, the, the newest device or the latest technology or food or toys. Kyra is hooked on ads. <laughs> she loves ads more than the shows. It's like, oh boy. Dad, this ad came up. Can I, can I get this? No, no. Young people are lured by the need to wear the latest clothes or devices that cost five times more than the ones that they could get that are just as good. As adults, we need to keep up with the Joneses. The comparison is just as alive as we grow older. If only I had done this like that person. Yeah, if I only had made this decision, that'd be us sitting in the pool, not our next door neighbour. See, comparison as adults is a killer because it, it removes us from our true self. Comparisons are not going to help us to become our true selves. The movie Amadeus shows this. Antonio Soleri is the court musician whose soul is destroyed by envy, by not possessing enough. He longs to create music for God and to be famous. And he's a really good musician. The problem is that he lives in the era where we have Mozart as well. And Mozart is a genius. Mozart, he had the ability to compose a symphony in his head. Not many people could do that. So rather than recognizing Mozart's genius and helping bring that to the world, Saleri became angry with God for being so unfair. Saleri started to believe that Mozart was loved by God and that he was not. That false self of longing to be something else is destroying him. I wonder if we can think of ourselves stripped of all possessions and defined only as God's son or daughter deeply loved by God. Where our worth is only based upon our Father in heaven. See, the early church, they understood this. In Acts 2, when they started growing, they sold all that they had, their possessions, to give to those who didn't have. They, they went, well, that's not as important as uh, authentically following our Lord. Imagine the joy that would have been brought to that community. I wonder if in our day and age, we've lost that sense of security in Christ and we started to find it in other things now. When we start to find security in possessions, and once again, possessions aren't a bad thing. They're not bad. But when we hold our possessions really tightly, things like money or things like what we own that we love, like my guitar, <laughs> my prized possession, and I wouldn't want to give it up for anything. But what if God told me to? Would I be able to? Because the reality is, who I am in Christ is more than the person that owns an awesome guitar. Maybe we feel we need it and it becomes our security rather than this true self of being in Christ. And that is what Ephesians 4 says destroys us. 
It says, put on a new self. One remembers who we are in Christ. Who remembers that all our possessions come from God anyway. All our finances come from God. God has seen us through the hard times and brings us to new times. God has put people in our lives that bless us in ways that we don't even know and understand. God has delivered meals to many, many people when they didn't have a meal. God has worked in someone in this church to, to go and do some gardening for someone else in this church. God has done all this sort of stuff, yet we still hold closely to possessions. It's become harder than any, ever before, and COVID didn't help us, did it? Because it it, we took a hit. We all took a hit. Financially, we took a hit. People lost roles, lost jobs. And so we go, oh, I better, better get more control now. But I wonder if we've also come out and gone, well, I'm pretty complacent now. I'm enjoying that little bit of extra cash that I've just been holding on to. So I might go out and buy stuff. It's okay to buy stuff. It's okay to have possessions. But don't allow it to take you away from who you are in Christ. Jesus, he says, no, I don't, I don't need all of that. I'm secure in who I am. I don't need to be seen with the biggest house or having the whole kingdom in my name. I reckon he was having a bit of a chuckle going, he doesn't know that I own it anyway, it's all mine. <laughs> Temptation three, I am what I think. And that's about popularity. Some people, they're addicted to what others think about them. That's the reality. Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the highest spot on the temple so that people might believe in him. He had no popularity campaign going at this stage. That would have quick smart gave him, given him a few likes on Facebook, wouldn't it? Jumped down and, hey, he's all right. Hey, wow, this guy's amazing. Most of us place a higher price on what people think of us than we realise. Will I feed into this conversation? What if I look silly? I'd love to date that person, but I don't think they'll like me. Do I speak up against the bully? Oh, probably should keep a low profile instead. What kind of career are my parents going to be proud of me in? I'll flip that around a little bit. Were my parents proud of me? Did I do good? Unfortunately, our self-confidence soars when we get these compliments and we can be quickly deflated when we get criticism. But true freedom in Christ, putting on this new self, occurs when we no longer need to be somebody special in anyone else's eyes. Because we know we're good enough as we are in the eyes of God. There's a word called differentiation. I don't know if you've come across it. And it's about, about being able to hear the voice of others and say, no, no, I know who I am in Christ and that isn't me. To be able to remove yourself from those spaces which can cause that, that oh, I'll just fall back into my false self, the false self that destroys We've got to keep being in the true self, that we know who God has called us to be and not what others think of us. See, in each temptation, Jesus said, he said, no, thank you. No, thank you. There are more important things. I've just come from the river where the heavens open up and my Lord said, 
I'm beloved. He's pleased with me. And I'm going to live into that. Very, very briefly, when these temptations pop up, what are we going to do? Four things very quickly. We're going to pay attention to what God is saying to us. And we need to find that in the silence. We need to get away and find that. Just like Jesus went into the Eremos, went into that space to find that quietness. Pay attention to what God's saying. When, these, when, it, when someone speaks to you and, and says, oh, do this because people will love you. Well, no, I'm already loved. Find God's voice in the, in the wilderness, in that silence, in that space. It might be a strong suit for you. It's not a strong suit for everyone to get away for silence. Um, I challenge you, do it anyway. Find those quiet times. Second thing, find trusted companions. Friends who are going to be close to you that when those temptations pop up, when the three temptations sort of start smacking you around and you forget who your true self is, call that friend of yours. Ask your partner to pray for you. I've got a, a mate, Nathan, who is uh, a great friend of mine, and we catch up monthly, and we do exactly that. Go, How are you going? How's life going? What, what have you been struggling with? How can I pray for you? I can be my true self with Nathan. Very true self. Because I know that he is on the journey with me, and I'm on the journey with him. Third thing is, move out of your comfort zone. Dying to your old self and allowing your true self to come out can be quite scary. Because it means doing things differently. It means sometimes saying no. It means changing your patterns to become what Christ has called you to become. You know, he's pleased with you. Live into that. And the fourth thing is pray for courage to be that person. It can be easy to revert back to the old self because it seems easier. That's who I know I am. That's who I grew up to be. That's who I was shaped to be by the society that I lived in, by what my teachers told me I had to do, what my parents said, this is what you should be. But pray that God will sustain you as you find that new self, as you bridge that gap between the the stage face and the behind the scenes face to being who God calls you to be. Because when you find that, others will be attracted to the Christ in you. Others will want to see that. Your neighbours will look at you and go, why are they so amazing? Because they've found their true self. May you be blessed along this journey of finding your true self. Because that's the self that people want to know. That's the self that brings glory to God. I'll invite the, the team to come up as I pray. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to explore how you... Uh, led Jesus into that desert and tempted, and he was tempted how he was tempted, and how we can learn that actually we can say no. We can walk in confidence because we know that our Lord, you, love us. We are your beloved, and you are our Lord. Help us walk in that way. Amen.